Well, I invite you once again to grab open your Bible and to open it up to John chapter 8. We'll be looking at page 894 if you've got one of our Bibles. This is the 85th time uh, we have asked people to open up the Word of God together as we preach a sermon here at this church. And out of those 85 sermons, only 14 of them have been from the Old Testament. Now, most of the time, uh, Christian people at church today, we spend our time in the New Testament, as we're doing going through the Gospel of John right now. And so sometimes you can think that the Old Testament isn't as important as the New Testament. Or even that we're kind of glad we're over the Old Testament. Because it's confusing and it's intense and God has kind of chilled out since then. You know, I don't know if you've gotten this idea. But there's this idea that I've heard people express that almost like there's two testaments because kind of they're teaching two different things. Like in the Old Testament, God's angry all the time and he's flooding the world and he's judging people. And then he like just kind of chilled out and sent Jesus and everything got a lot better in the New Testament. And in the Old Testament, people were saved by the law. It was all about what you had to do. And it was this very harsh legalistic system about like you got to do this and you got to and all these crazy things that they had to do. And now it's just like, ah, it doesn't matter what you do. Just love people. Like that's the impression that's going on out there. Okay. Now, I I rightly think we should spend more time in the New Testament because that's what reveals to us the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and all of its fullness. It it describes to us the church, and that's the age we're living in. But let's just make it very clear. Nothing changed from the Old to the New Testament. They tell the same story with the same God and the same way to be saved. In fact, there's some great acts of love of God in the Old Testament, and there's some extreme acts of judgment of God in the New Testament. Nod your head if you're tracking with me about this. Does everybody understand? It's one book, right? Two Testaments, but they tell the same story. Are people saved by doing the works of the law in the Old Testament? Is that how it worked back then? No, they were still saved by faith, the same way that you and I are saved. Theirs was a faith looking forward. Ours is a faith looking back. But it makes it very clear that people were justified not by the things that they do. No, the point of the law was that you couldn't be justified by the things that you do. No, it was to lead you to faith in the grace and mercy of God. And so only one out of, our, one out of six sermons at this church have come from the Old Testament, but I think if you looked back on your notes and if you thought back, uh, almost every sermon of this church, we have referred to the Old Testament. In fact, in a lot of the sermons, if you don't understand something from the Old Testament, what you read in the New Testament won't even make sense to you at all, and it'll be kind of confusing, and that's definitely true of where we're at in John 8. Jesus and the Jews are in the midst of a fierce debate. I mean, they are going to start calling each other names here. I mean, it is controversial and it is contentious. And they're arguing about something that if you didn't know the Old Testament is going to go right over your head. Or you might get it a little bit, but you're not going to get the fullness of meaning. And so we'll start here in John 8. But then we're going to have to go back and make sure we really understand what we're talking about from the Old Testament. So we're going to start in verse 37, right where we left off last week. And I'll just read to uh, verse 47 to get us started here. 
This is in the middle of a debate about who Jesus is, and the Jews are rejecting him, and some are saying they believe in him, and Jesus is trying to teach them. And here we go in verse 37. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. We're going to have a debate now about who their father is. And they answered him in verse 39, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You are doing the works your father did. Again, Jesus implying that they have a different father than Abraham. And they said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality, implying perhaps that Jesus was. We have one father, even God. God's our father. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God, and I am here. And I came not of my own accord, but he, the father, sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is you are not of God. So there's a debate going, and this debate has been going uh, really all the way from chapter 7 here in the temple at the Feast of Tabernacles. We're continuing this same debate, and we saw that there was debate that began in chapter 6 and even back in chapter 5, where the Jewish leaders started to really reject the idea that Jesus was God. And then, it, through all of the conversation of what he said about them, that they're going to die in their sins that we heard last week, and their rejection of him, this debate has gotten pretty intense to the point where we're basically saying that we were born in immorality, and we're saying who we think each other's father really is. It's getting quite contentious. And it says here that these guys, these Jews, are convinced that they are right. They are convinced that Jesus must be wrong and they are in good standing because they are children of Abraham. And see, that's so important. That determines everything, how they identify themselves as children of Abraham. And then for Jesus to tell the Jewish people, God's chosen nation, that their father is the devil. I mean, now we're, we're really getting real as how we would say it today. And so you've got to understand, why do they think that they must be right because they are born in the line of Abraham? Go back with me to Genesis chapter 12. And we're going to have to make sure that everybody here understands the Abrahamic covenant, which we would consider one of the biggest covenants. There are many covenants in the Old Testament. And that's really a promise, but it's more than a promise. It's a, it's a promise that's, that's a pact between God and the man that he makes the covenant with, or maybe the group of people that he makes the covenant with. And God says something to Abraham here in Genesis 12 that changes everything. 
And it gave these Jews this kind of self-confidence that they must be right because they were descendants of Abraham. And what they're really referring to here in John 8, thousands of years later, goes all the way back to these three verses of what God says. This is when he's Abram, before we change his name to Abraham. This is what God says to him. So you should have this written down somewhere that this is the Abrahamic covenant. It's kind of a foundational thing about the Jewish people. And it's in Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. And it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country. He asked him to move. And from your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So the first thing that God promises to Abram here is he promises him a specific land. That's why we refer to it as the promised land. And I will make of you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. In fact, here's how I'm going to think of it. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse and in you... All the families of the earth shall be blessed. So here's just this ordinary guy, Abram, living with his family. And now God says he's going to move him basically across the known world at that time to this land of promise. And in this land, Abraham is going to go from one man, one family, and he's going to become a great nation of people. Uh, and, this, and this promise is still going to this very day that there are going to be descendants of Abraham and through these, this group of people that we know of as the Jews, the whole world is going to be blessed. Like they're going to reach everybody. And in fact, just trace it throughout history. People who have been good to the Jews, people who have blessed the Jews, well, it's usually gone well for them in the end. People who have been against the Jews and cursed the Jews, well, how has it worked out for some of those people? That's what it's saying here. This is a promise before any of that happens, that everyone in the world is going to be blessed through the descendants of Abraham, through the seed of Abraham, and ultimately it's through the line of the Jews that we're going to get our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so the idea now, over thousands of years from this important promise right here, this promise of a land and of a blessing and of a seed that will infect literally everyone who ever lives on this planet, that promise has gone to the heads of these Jewish people. And they think now that they must be right. They think now that how could they be wrong when arguing with Jesus because our father is Abraham and we know we are blessed people. In fact, the world is lucky to have us here, the Jews would think, because we're God's people and we're a blessing to everybody else. See? And so now, to go to those people a privileged people, a promised people, a people who would think that they were already on God's side and to say to them, you are actually of your father, the devil. See, it doesn't get much more intense than that. Anybody, is Jesus pretty intense to anybody else, right? Can you imagine having some, having some turkey sandwiches in the lunch break room at work or maybe while you're having lunch during school this week? And you start talking to somebody and they're like, well, I'm this kind of person. And, and you start getting into religion. I had a conversation the other day. It happens to me all the time because people ask me, like, what do you do? And I say, well, I'm a pastor. And all of a sudden the conversation gets interesting. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and all of a sudden people want to tell you that they're a Mormon or they're anti-religion. 
and they look right at you and they kind of have this weird, weird look when they say that they're anti-religion. Like, you're the problem. I've identified you. You're one of those guys, right? Can you imagine if I looked at these people that I was talking to this week and they said, what do you do? I'm a pastor and the conversation got interesting. Can you imagine if I'd said, well, yeah, you guys are of your father, the devil. I mean, can you imagine saying something like that? Like the boldness of that. Like those are fighting words, okay? Like, like why would Jesus look at God's chosen nation of Israel? Look at the Jews that are now debating him here in the temple. And what he decides that he wants to say to them is you're from Satan. Why would he say that? We know that everything Jesus does was perfect. We know that it must be true if Jesus said it. We know that it must be actually the loving thing to say if Jesus said it. So why does he say it? Go back to John chapter 8. Because he has to break through their false assurance of being children of Abraham. And he has to show them who they really are children of. That we don't start out as children of God. Let's just make that very clear. No one is born a child of God. You are actually born a child of the devil. Okay? And that's very clear. And that, again, you got to go back to the Old Testament that when Satan tempted our original descendants, Adam and Eve, and they fell into sin, well, that sin has now been passed down throughout all of humanity. And yes, we are born in the image of God. That's something we all have in common, is we are all image bearers here in the human race. And we all start out in some kind of awareness of God, and we all have that in in common together as human beings. But look back at verse 44, and look what Jesus says. He's saying this on purpose, and he's saying this in love. This is what he says. You are of your father, the devil, confronting them to who they really are. In fact, what you want to do is what Satan wants you to do. And he alludes to it several times, but they're not listening to him. In fact, Jesus says, here's how you can know you don't know God because you don't understand the words of him that I say. You guys can't hear what I'm saying, he keeps saying to these guys. You guys don't get what I'm saying. You have a different father. And eventually, he says, you are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning. He has a heart of hatred. And he does not stand in the truth. Tricking one brother to kill the, kill the other brother. Cain and Abel. There we go. And there is no truth in him. In fact, when he lies, well, that's natural. That's normal. He speaks out of his own character. For he is a liar and the father of lies. And he is your father. That's what Jesus says to the crowd. And the truth is, if Jesus was here, and we thought we were a privileged people because we grew up going to church, and we thought we were some kind of promised people because we grew up in these United States of America, and God blessed these United States, and we were here, and we thought we were somebody, and we brought that to Jesus. You know what he would say to us? You're of your father, the devil. That's what he would say to us. Same thing would be true of me and you today, that you don't have to teach kids how to hate other kids. You don't have to teach kids how to fight with each other, how to grab their own toy, how to say mine, and how to lie when you try to hold them accountable for what they're doing. And man, is our kids just not great at blaming somebody else from their problems? No, they're born in sin. 
of their father, the devil. This is the way that all of us were born. I don't know if you've ever really thought about it like this, but at one time, maybe the devil was your daddy. That's the truth. And for some people here in this room this morning, it is still true to this very day that you have more in common with Satan than you do with God. That's what Jesus is saying. Straightforward. A little too clear. Hey, Jesus, why don't you just keep it, you know, toned down a little bit, right? Just keep it elusive, right? No, go to 1 John 3, because the Apostle John in the New Testament, when he writes a letter about what it means to be a Christian and how to live as a Christian, he expounds on this idea. The Apostle John was not ashamed that Jesus said this. No, he brings it back up. And he wants us to really think about this transition of going from a child of the devil to a child of God. And he expounds on it with great detail here in chapter 3 of 1 John. Remember, this is a book that is written so that you could know that you know God. The point of the Gospel of John that we're studying is to get you to believe. Well, after you believe, how do you know you really have that eternal life? That you're really living that life for Jesus. Well, here's one way in 1 John chapter 3, verse 1. And it says, see, behold, look at this. See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. Some of us naturally are going to think that we're good people who would be on God's side and not on Satan's side. And we would think that just kind of the way we were born, just kind of who we were born to, the way we grew up, who we are in and of ourselves, that we would be on the side of God the whole time. And it's no. The only reason you're on the side of God, the only reason that you would be called a child of God, is that He loved you. That's the only reason. You weren't born into his family. He adopted you out of the family of Satan. Talk about a picture, right? Growing up in Satan's house. And here comes the heavenly father. And he comes and he adopts you. And he brings you. Can you see the love? Is it a history of love that you went from a child of the darkness and into the glorious light of God? That's what John starts with. This is the reason the world doesn't know us. Is it does, the world doesn't know him. But we are God's children now. Look at the love. Look at the Father's love. Our Abba Father and how He adopted us. Because now we're God's children. We didn't used to be, but now we are. And what we will be has not yet appeared. What it's going to fully look like to be 100% like God, like Christ. We haven't seen that yet. But we know that when He appears, when Jesus appears, we will be like Him. We will see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him, if you have a hope of seeing Jesus, being with Jesus, being like Jesus, well then you purify yourself as He is pure. Now here John is going to get very clear following the teaching of Jesus here in John 8 that we're studying. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness and sin is lawlessness. Okay? You know that He appeared, Jesus appeared, in order to take away sins and in Jesus there is no sin. So the people over here, children of the devil, they're continuing in sin. Here's Jesus over here. He has no sin. We're drawing a distinction, a black and white paradigm here. No one who abides in Jesus keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen Jesus or knows Jesus. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as Jesus is righteous. But whoever makes a practice of sinning, 
That's their habit. That's their lifestyle. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the, who does it say there, everybody, is of the who? You're a child of the devil. You're following your father. You got a heart full of hatred. You got lies coming out of your life. Well, that's because you're still a child of Satan. For the devil has been sinning all the way back from the beginning. That's the Old Testament. That's Genesis there. And the reason the Son of God appeared, now in the New Testament, was to destroy the works of the devil. He appeared to destroy the power of sin over our lives. No one born of God, born again into the family of God, makes a practice of sinning. For now, God's seed abides in him. Now he's one of God's kids. And he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. In fact, now it's evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. We can, we can see it. We can see it in people's lives, who their daddy really is, who's their father. Well, I'll tell you who's the father, who's got God as your father, and who's got the devil as your father. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. There it is. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. It says, by your lifestyle, by the pattern, the practice of the way that you live, if you continue in a pattern of sin, hatred, murder, lies, coming out of your heart and continuing to direct your life, your father here this morning is the devil. That's what Jesus would say. But if you're over here and you can now see the love of God that changed your life from the inside out, and now you've got this new practice, sin doesn't define your life anymore. And you're now walking in a pattern of righteousness. You're striving every day to, to follow Christ, to become more like Him, to be pure as He is pure, to be righteous as He is righteous. Well, praise God that you got adopted out of Satan's family and you're now a child of God. That's what it's saying here. And these guys thought that just because they rolled out of bed in the morning, just because they were born Jews, and they had a moral code, and they came from good stock, and remember the promise all the way back to Abraham, that puts us in the child of God category. Only one thing puts wretches like me and you in the child of God category, the love of God in Jesus Christ. It's the only way anybody here gets adopted. You don't show up on any team but Satan's team. That's where we all started out. And if you can't see some of the same deceit and some of the same self-seeking pride and disregard for other people that were in your heart that describe Satan, you can't relate to Satan, then maybe you don't have the right view of yourself and maybe you need to hear Jesus say to you this morning, you're of your father, the devil. Because we all started out in lies and hatred and just wanting for ourselves, not really caring about the people around us, not really worshiping God and giving Him glory. That's why Satan fell from heaven and started causing all of the mayhem that he has. And he brought us down with him. And we have to go at some point from being one of the children of the devil to by the love of God and the power of Christ in our lives becoming a child of God. You've got to ask yourself this morning, which family am I in? Who is my father? Don't be deceived like the Jews were in the day of Jesus. Point number one, let's get it down like this. You need to be confident you are a child of God. We want every single person here at this church to be confident. As it says here in 1 John, 
We are not afraid to say bold words that might seem inflammatory to people, that might seem controversial to people. We'll go so far as to call people children of the devil in the hope that they will see their practice of sin, they will call out for the love of God, and they will be adopted into the family. And they will now practice righteousness. If you have that hope that you've been adopted into God's family, you will purify yourself just as Jesus is pure. You will see now a new way to live in your heavenly Father. And when you hear words from the Father through the Son, you will receive them as commands, as the guide for your life. And you will want to run in the way of the Lord. You will want to walk in His commands. And that's what the Jews, as they're hearing Jesus talk to them, they just made them mad. See, I wonder if I tell you this morning that you were born a child of the devil, do you end up grateful or do you end up mad? Do you end up offended or do you end up just worshiping God that you're no longer the person that you used to be? Which way, which way do you respond? Because the Jews, they just started calling him names at this point. They just got angry. I mean, you know, when you debate, debates usually start out very nice and they start out intellectual and they start out like everybody's friendly and polite and of course we're going to be well-mannered and then emotions start to get into it and then it gets personal and then people are thinking about punching one another in the face. You've been in one of those kind of debates, right? And all of a sudden now, because you're not getting what I'm saying, because you're not agreeing with me, because you're not telling me that I'm right, now all of a sudden I might even go so far as to start name-calling. That's what happens in John 8. Go back to it, and you'll see it here in John chapter 8, that he says, you're of your father, the devil, and then they're just kind of over it at this point. I mean, they already basically implied that he was born of sexual immorality. They've already kind of taken a shot at him here. Um, and now they're just going to flat out say, let's read the next chunk here of John 8, starting in verse 48. Look at their response. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Oh man, you're just proving the point here, Jesus. Look at you, man. We can't be children of the devil. We're Jews. So you must not be a Jew. You must be a Samaritan, which is the group of people that the Jews love to hate the most because they were they were people who grew up in the line of being Jews, but now they had intermarried with other ethnicities. That was part of the takeover of Assyria of the northern kingdom. They brought in people of other nations, and they got all kind of mixed up, and they lost their, their kind of pure Jewish heritage here. That's how the Jews would have thought of it. So now you can't even be one of us, because look at the dumb things you're saying. So you're a Samaritan, and, oh, you want to say we're of Satan? Well, you have a demon, you know? It feels like, hey, bounces off me and sticks back on you, you know, neener, 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 that kind of stuff, double stickies, you know, whatever that kind of stuff, we used to argue, it just feels like a, like we've just gotten down to the playground here, and a fight is about to break out at lunchtime, here in the temple, that's what it feels like, oh, well, see, of course you have a demon, and Jesus answered, I did not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, Yet I do not seek my own glory, there is one, referring to the father who seeks it, and he is the judge, now, this is so gracious, okay? You might think, wow, that's super intense that you would say to somebody that they're of their father, the devil. Well, look what Jesus is immediately ready to say shortly after that here in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, if you really hear what I'm saying, and you really be make it your life, he will never see death. I mean, can you imagine if somebody said, you're, 
you're not even a real American. You have a demon, right? And you're like, man, I just don't want you to die. Like, that's your reply. Like, you're just so gracious. What a gracious invitation. I mean, hey, guys, if you could just hear what I'm saying, and you could just see who you really are, and you could hear my word, and you could keep my word, truly, I say to you guys, you would never taste death. You would never see it. You would never really have the pain and the suffering and that experience of death that we as humans naturally dread and fear because of our sin. Hey guys, I want to save you from dying in your sins. That's what I'm trying to do. And I know you don't believe me, and I know you think I have a demon, but really I'm just here to save you. That's what Jesus said. I mean, people are insulting him, they're rejecting him, they're persecuting him, and he still has his eye on the prize of saving their souls. What a gracious response of our Lord to these people who are accusing him of being a demon and committing gross blasphemy, and their response to his gracious response is, verse 52, the Jews said to him, well, now we know you have a demon. Look at the, who is this guy? Completely missing the point. How could you say that we won't see death? Because Abraham died. He's the standard, Father Abraham. I mean, he, he's the one we're all following. Well, he died. Even the prophets died. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? Oh, so you're like better than Abraham now? Oh, you're better than the prophets because they died. Who do you make yourself out to be? And Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father, Abraham, rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. You guys want to talk about Abraham? You want to act like who am I to compare myself to Abraham or the prophets? Well, let me tell you that when Abraham saw my day, he rejoiced when he saw my day. Oh man, you look at their response now. The Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. This is preposterous. Have you seen Abraham? What are you talking about? And Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Who could you be? You can't be better than Abraham. You can't be better than the prophets. Actually, when Abraham saw my day, he thought it was pretty awesome. What? You're not even 50, which must be some like standard of old or something. You can just interpret that however you want to interpret it, okay? Uh, but they, you're not even 50. How do you know Abraham? No, before Abraham was, before Genesis 12, before thousands of years before this, everything bef you're basing your life on, before that, I am, Jesus says. And one of the amazing statements of all of Scripture Jesus claims to be God here in such a profound, mind-blowing way that the only response of these haters is in the temple mount, in the holy place of worship to God. They pick up stones to stone Jesus Christ because they are now so upset that the only thing they can do is murder is what they want to do. 
proving, after all, who their father really is. This was not a normal occurrence for people to be stoned in the temple. You weren't supposed to be doing stonings in the temple. We're supposed to be bringing people outside of town if we're going to execute justice on them through the Old Testament form of capital punishment of stoning. But this is just hatred. This is just downright anger in their hearts. And they want to kill the one who just claimed to be God for the sin of blasphemy. The biggest problem the Jews had with Jesus is his claim to be God. They could not handle it and they wanted to kill him. And somehow, mysteriously, divinely, doesn't really give us the details here, but Jesus hid himself. I don't know what that means. Whether everybody, he was there and they couldn't see him, whether he disappeared, or whether he just picked up his cloak. I, I mean, I don't know what he did. I don't know what he did, but here comes an angry crowd of Jews wanting to end him because he just claimed to be before Abraham and all of a sudden he's not there to be ended. Because it's not his time. Now, see, this statement, this I am statement, is so fully loaded with meaning that if you don't understand the Old Testament, it might seem a little bit intense that all of a sudden they're picking up stones to kill him. But he's not just saying that he existed before Abraham. This statement, this ego I me in the Greek, this I am statement that Jesus makes, is one of the most important things that happens in the Gospel of John. This claim that Jesus makes to be I am. And it comes from the Old Testament. Now, we've already seen it a couple of times, and we have sermons on these times that Jesus has already said, I am. And one of the things that he said was, I am the bread of life in John chapter 6. And if you remember, we did a whole study on this. And it was such a fitting analogy because he fed thousands of people in a miraculous way, dividing loaves and fishes and handing them out to feed thousands. And then when they came back looking for more physical food, he said, no, I'm beyond physical food. I'm what you need for spiritual life. I'm what you need for soul satisfaction. I am the bread of life. I am the one who gives you life. That was like the first big I am statement that he dropped. Well, he'd already done one earlier here in John chapter 8. Look back at verse 12. And if you celebrated Christmas Eve with us, you remember we dived into this statement where again Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. And he claims that he is the one who will get his followers out of the darkness and they will never go back and walk in the darkness again because now they will have the light of life. They can't walk in the darkness anymore. Not only is he, is he saying that he is the one who gives spiritual life, but he's claiming to be the one who exposes the darkness and draws it into the light. He's claiming to be the one who's the difference between being cast into outer darkness and being ushered into the glorious light of God. That's what he's claiming. With these I am statements. Now he's been saying it in, further in John chapter uh, 8 here. Look at verse 25. And look what he's saying here in, in these verses. Uh, actually, start with me in verse 24. I told you that you would die in your sins. For you, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So there was a little reference to it there. I am. There, there, that's where he said it. And they said, well, who are you? There's, they don't understand. Just what I have been telling you from the beginning. I have much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true. And I declare to the world that I have heard from him. 
They did not understand. He's speaking to them about the Father. And then Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And really, I, don't, I mean, the He is there in our English translation, but in the Greek, it comes across very strong as this I am statement. Okay? He's trying to tell them, someday you're going to realize I am. Someday you're going to realize I am. And then now, finally, at the end of the conversation, the climax, the thing that ends the argument, is before Abraham was, I am. And he's claiming to be God. In fact, he's referencing a direct name for God that we see revealed to us in the book of Exodus. Okay? Now, he's not just saying before Abraham was, I was. That's how we would think he would say if it was just talking about existing before Abraham. But it's a title that he's using for himself. It's a name that describes who he is. So grab your Bible, and once again, we've got to go to the Old Testament. Go to Exodus chapter 3. See, that you're going to miss the punch of that line. You're going to miss why the Jews immediately thought it was blasphemous that Jesus said before Abraham was, I am. It's not just because they were all obsessed with Abraham, although we see that that was part of it. It's because of what he is referring to here at the beginning of the nation of Israel. We know that the promise was made to Abraham. And that for a while he was referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. That's what Genesis does, is it traces through the family of Abraham to his son, to his grandson, and then to his many great-grandsons. And then they end up in Egypt. And it's in Egypt where they become a great nation. And they call out to God, and now God is going to save them. He's going to deliver them out of their slavery in Egypt. And he presents it to Moses. Moses comes to see this bush that's burning but is not burned up and he enters into the presence of God and he's told to take off his sandals because this is holy ground. Maybe you're familiar with the story of the burning bush, we call it. And this is a part of the conversation where God has sent Moses to go and speak on his behalf to the people of Israel, his chosen promised people. And Moses said to God, this is Exodus 3.13, look at this with me. Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, referring to Abraham, referring to Isaac and Jacob, and they ask me, what is his name? What is this God? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Do you now see what Jesus is referring to here? Do you now see what he's speaking to the people of Israel? He's claiming to be I am, which is the name that God gives to himself when Moses is now going to go on behalf of God and speak to the people of Israel and say, hey, God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he's going to get us all out of here. Well, what's his name? Here's his name. I am. That's his name. And you can see here in verse, uh, verse 15, God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Does that sound like that directly applies to us sitting here this morning? What do you guys think? 
Are we supposed to remember God like this? Is this a good case for why the Old Testament is important? Because it's building the foundation here that Jesus is referring to later that the Jews want to kill him. And if we don't understand the foundation, we're going to miss the meaning of what Jesus is really saying. He's claiming to be God. He's claiming that he is Yahweh. That's really what it is here in the Hebrew language. It's the four Hebrew letters. It's sometimes referred to as the tetragrammaton. And sometimes because the Jews had such a reverence for the name of God, they wouldn't even refer to Yahweh as his name. They would put in other vowel sounds in there and they would end up calling him Jehovah or something like that because they wouldn't even use this name of God because they held it in such high regard and such honor that God is I am. I mean, what an amazing name for God. Not I was, not I will be, but I am. I mean, in this one name, and especially even how it works in the Greek language, in our text, before Abraham was, I am. What you have in those two words is a statement on the eternality of God. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about someone who has always existed. We're talking about someone who is self-existent, okay? We're talking about someone who not only, and let's just try to start breaking this down because we're going to do something that's very dangerous to do. We're going to try to understand God right now, okay? And and, and we're going to fail, but we're going to try to get a little bit closer than we are when we walked into the room. And one of the things that we're going to see about God is that God exists outside of space and time, something that you and I cannot relate to in any degree, okay? That God, and and also something else that I think is bound up in this statement, I think there's two attributes of God that we're getting into here, and I would hope that you would write these down. One is the self-existence of God, okay? That God never needed creation, God never needed salvation, God never, he's always been who he is, That's something about God. And when we hear the word always, we think then of this other thing, the eternality of God, okay? The eternality of God, which includes existing all the way back in the past and includes existing all the way forward in the future, but it's beyond that, okay? Now, let's just think about when we hear eternal, we think of a timeline that goes in both ways and never ends, which already right there, that's hard enough to think about, okay? Because we always, everything we know has a beginning. We can't go before the beginning. I mean, there was the beginning of your life. Try to think about before the beginning of your life. Well, there was the beginning of America. Think about the beginning of that. Well, there was the beginning of the world. Think about the beginning of that. Well, then there was a beginning before the beginning. So we have a hard time going back. Like maybe some of us have, maybe, maybe there's somebody here who's been 100 years old. Maybe. That would be amazing if there's somebody who's been 100 years old. That's like the longest possible time that maybe we could relate to in a personal experience. And you just got to keep going 100 years and 100 years and 100 years. And it just goes all the way back. It never stops going back. We can't comprehend that. But it's more than that. It's not just infinity future and infinity past. It says in the scripture that to the Lord, one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Now we just kind of brush that off and we don't really think deeply about some of these things and we just try to say like, oh yeah, that means like like a day doesn't seem like a big deal to me, like a thousand years doesn't seem like a big deal to God because he's got so many thousands of years, it's just like another day to us. 
that's kind of how we kind of dumb it down, you know, that's kind of, we put, a, put it on the yellow book, like eternality for dummies right there, kind of, that's, right? Let's try, to, let's try to think about it a little differently. No, a day to me, like I can remember everything that happened in a day. Like I, can, I consider myself present in the day that we're in right now. I'm no longer present in yesterday, not yet present in tomorrow, but in a day, I feel like I knew what happened this morning, I know where I'm going for lunch today, and I'm already thinking about, like I'm present in this moment. That's what it's saying, that God is present in a thousand years like you're present in a day. He's continuously present in a time period of like a thousand years. Are we like sci-fi yet for anybody, right? Is that a little mind-altering? We have a category for infinity future. We can't understand it. We have a category for infinity past. We can't understand it. But continuously present in a time period of like a thousand years? See, we can't understand that at all. I can't even imagine being continuously present in something more than the moment that I'm in right now. And now this one. And then the next one. See, I live moment by moment, and God lives outside of moments, continuously present in all moments. See? Now we're just confused on a higher level, hopefully, here this morning, right? That's the idea. I am. It's a statement about his being, not just the length of time. It's a statement about who he is, that he exists outside of time. And from his self-existence, from his eternal being, he wants to offer us a relationship with him. He wants to reach down into our finite, brief collection of moments that we call life, and he wants to be known by us. And that's why he's saying, Moses, I want these people to know me, and I want you to introduce me. And here's how I want to be remembered throughout all generations, that it doesn't matter if you're in ancient Israel or you're walking on the time of Christ or you're living in 2016 in America, wherever you are, here's what you can know about me. I am. That's what he wants to be known as. He wants to be known by his people. And here's a couple of things he wants his people to know. Look back at verse 11 here in Exodus 3. But Moses said to God, who am I? Hey, I think you picked the wrong guy to go and speak to Pharaoh. Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? I'm, I'm nobody special here. I'm living out in the wilderness for 40 years. Uh, maybe I was at one time a, a prince of Egypt, but now I'm just a guy out here in the wilderness. Why are you calling on me? He said, here's something God wants to know. From his self-existence to your existence, but I will be with you. And this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God. You're going to come back and you're going to worship me on this mountain. Here's something that the I am wants every one of us to know is that with him being an eternal state of being, he is with you in your present moment right now. There is never a moment that you could exist that he is not with you in that moment in his eternal state of being. That's one thing he wants you to know. Go to chapter 6. What's this all about? Why, why, why are we now giving this name? Why didn't you say I am to Abraham? Why all of a sudden are we dropping I am on Moses here at the beginning of, of Exodus? And look at verse 2. Here of Exodus chapter 6 verse 2. God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I am Yahweh. I am. 
I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, as El Shaddai. Okay, that's how I presented myself to them. But by my name, the Lord, Yahweh, I am, I did not make myself known to them. So God's making a distinction. When I came to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, I presented myself this way. Now I'm making myself known in a new way that those guys, I didn't introduce myself like this to them. But I'm introducing myself now to you like this, Moses. And I want you to introduce me to the people of Israel like this. So what's significant about that, that now he wants to be known as the I am. I also established my covenant with them, we read that, Genesis 12, to give them the land of Canaan, the land in which they lived as sojourners. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the people of Israel, whom the Egyptians hold as slaves, and I have remembered my covenant. I know what I promised. Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great acts of judgment. I will take you to be my people and will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you up from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Hey, I'd never told Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob this. I had a relationship with those guys, but here's something I never told them. I never told them this name I am, and here's why I'm telling you guys, because one thing I want you to see is that I am, out of my existence, I want to save your existence. That's what I am is about. What is he ever present? He is ever present in every continuous moment. He is there. He is with you. And what is he ever present with you to do? To save you. That's what he wants to do. He wants to take those burdens off of your life, that burden of your sin, that burden of being born a child of Satan, and he wants to deliver you. He wants to redeem you. He wants to buy you back with his mighty outstretched arm, the I am, wants to save you out of his existence. He wants to rescue your existence. That's what he's all about. He's busting out a new name with the people of Israel because he's doing something now that he wants to be remembered for throughout all generations that he delivered his people out of their bondage, out of their slavery, and he wants you to know here this morning that he will deliver you out of your slavery to sin and he will set you free. That's what he wants you to know. You call him I am because he's always there because he's always with you and God is always ready to act for your salvation think about that 24 7 lifeline there is not a moment where you can exist that God is not also continuously present in and where he is not with you and what does he want to do when he's with you he wants to save you in that moment I mean, we could be talking about saving your soul for all of eternity, or we could be talking about the ever-present help that we as Christians need to get through the day. Whatever deliverance you need this morning, God is present here in this place right now. I am. He wants you to know. He's here, and He is ready to act for your salvation. What an amazing God we have. There has never been a moment that you have ever existed or will ever exist that God has let you down. That God has not been there for you. That God has not been ready to save you. See, that's what he wants people to know about him. Moses, make sure you explain this to the people. Something new that I'm doing right now. Here's what I want people to know. And is not the story of the Israelites being delivered out of Egypt told to every single generation of children that is born on this planet so they can see the great deliverance of our awesome God? It's one of the most famous kid stories of all time, is it not? 
is because he wants his glory to be known. He wants his self-existence to save your existence. He wants you to know that he is with you now to save you. Now, this is a, a rich doctrine, a rich attribute of God. Go to Psalm chapter 90. This might be perhaps the most famous passage in the Bible that compares the eternality of God with the fleeting nature of our present life. With us living in time and God living in eternity, there is a real contrast here that develops. Look at Psalm 90 with me. And it says, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting eternity past to everlasting eternity future, you are God. Look at your eternality. You're, you're always there for us to dwell in you throughout all generations. But now let's contrast us in response to this eternal God. Let's look at us, people living in time. You return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight, here's that other dimension of eternality. A thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past. Or as a watch in the night. And you sweep them, these sinners, away as with a flood. They are like a dream, like grass that is renewed in the morning. That's comparing our life compared to God's eternality. We're like grass that's just going. We're like a dream when you wake up. In the morning it flourishes and is renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Like it's just that fast. We are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath, we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you. Our secret sins are in the light of your presence. All our days pass away under your wrath. You bring our years to an end like a sigh. The years of our life are what? Are 70? Or even by reason of strength, 80? Yet their span, their entire length is but toil and trouble. And soon they are gone and we fly away. Who considers the power of your anger? and your wrath according to the fear of you. So, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. God lives in a realm of unending existence. In contrast, we live in a realm of fleeting and temporary existence. What is it, 70 years maybe? 80 years now? What, what's the lifespan? It's so short is the point here. That from dust you came as mankind, and from dust you will return. It's like the grass that just grows up, and then you mow it later on in the day. It just goes so fast. That is our life. And this brief period of time that we are aware of existence here on this planet, from that brief period of time, after that, our soul will depart from time and it will enter into this thing that we don't fully grasp yet, but we're learning about this morning. Our soul will go from being something bound in time and it will enter eternity. And once it enters eternity, it will be where it is forever, either with God or apart from God. And so in this brief little time, man, we need a heart of wisdom. We need to learn how to make the most of the time because it won't be long for us. It'll be pretty quick. It'll be like the breath that comes out on a cold day and it's there and then it's gone and you can't see it. And you can't get it back. So it will be for us when we die. And then we will enter eternity. From the moment that we die, whatever, wherever our soul is at in that moment, it will lock us in to the new eternal realm and we will so 
always be either with God, seeing His glory and worshiping Him, or apart from God in outer darkness, experiencing His wrath and displeasure. This is something that we need to come to grips with. This is something that we need to compare God's eternality with our own mortality. And we need to make sure that we're ready to die. In fact, we need to make sure that we're living the present moment in a way like we're trying to seize the day and not let it get away because who knows how much more moments you have to let get away. See, one thing I used to do when I was a a youth pastor is I tried to equip students to spread the gospel at their high schools. And so we would start these campus lunches. And sometimes I would wonder how good the students would do at presenting the gospel. And I was walking up to this one high school one day, and this young man was going to speak. And I was wondering if he was going to do a good job or how he was going to do it. And I was surprised when I walked into the classroom. It was one of those big science classrooms. And this guy, he had 40 people come to this lunch. To hear him present the gospel of Jesus. I mean, one student out by himself in the world, and yet he had invited 40 people to come. And he began to preach, and it didn't take me long to realize this guy had, was going off script. Like, we gave them kind of a prepared idea of what they could say from the word. This guy, he was preaching his own sermon. And he was fired up. And he was going for it. And he was flipping around in his Bible, and it seemed like he was really trying to help these high schoolers who feel like they have so much time, and there's so much life ahead of them, and they can get serious tomorrow. And he was trying to tell them that they needed to get saved today because who knows how much time you really have. And this was in those, one of those science classrooms at a public high school with the raised desks and like workstations there where you could do labs. And it's a bigger than normal classroom. So they didn't just have one whiteboard like the size of this I am blocks. It was actually like three massive whiteboards in the front of the room. And I remember he walked all the way over to the far whiteboard, all the way over here, and he got a marker, and he started walking with a line all the way across the classroom, across three massive whiteboards in this classroom. And then he walked all the way back over to the beginning, and he put a dot at the beginning of the line, and then he started walking all the way back here, and he said, see that dot? That's your life on this planet. That's how long you're going to be around compared to eternity. And it goes on forever. Are you ready right now to enter the rest of your life? This is all that you know of your life right now. Are you ready to enter the rest of your life? He said, be wise. You only have so much time. Make sure that you are right with God now. Make sure that you know him. That you're ready to meet him. I was impressed with the passion of this young man as he pleaded with high school students about their mortality to try to get them to see that these brief fleeting moments that we have, that we're aware of right now, that are continually passing us by, how we interact with God in these moments determines our eternal destination. And eternity is so much greater than anything we could comprehend right now. You see, it's crazy to me that your eternity is going to be determined by one moment of time. One moment of time where Jesus Christ on the cross yielded up his spirit to the Father. And in that one moment of time, that moment where God actually turned away from the Son and judged him for your sin, in that one moment, Jesus redeemed you. He purchased your salvation. 
That's what we believe here. We believe in the death of Jesus Christ as the centerpiece of the gospel and that when Jesus took God's wrath and anger for you on that cross, in that one moment of time, he got for you eternal life. That's what he got for you. He suffered in that moment so that you could spend eternity knowing God and it could start right now and it could just grow in your love and worship of him until one day you are with him forever in his presence. And all it takes here, right now, this morning, is one moment of time to put your faith in Jesus Christ. Do you realize that? When we get to heaven, however long we lived, maybe it's 70 years, maybe it's 80 years, not everybody's even given that long. All of those years will be reduced to one moment, and whether it happened or not in your life, one moment will determine your eternal destiny. Did you believe in Jesus dying for you on the cross, or did you not believe in him? And it's all dependent on that. It's all dependent on your faith in this man who says, before Abraham was, I am. Do you believe that here this morning? This morning we want to take communion. We want to remember that Jesus Christ died for us on that cross. I'm going to call the ushers to get ready and to come forward with the elements. And I want you, as we remember here, Jesus dying for us on that cross, I would encourage you to make sure that there has been a moment in your life where you have put your faith in Christ. And I want you to consider, point number two here, as we wrap up the sermon, I want you to consider your coming transition from time into eternity, that the brief fleeting moments of this life are going to expand into an eternal presence of being. Are you ready for that transition here this morning? Do you have confidence in what Jesus did on that cross? And have you had that moment where you transferred your trust from yourself, from thinking that you were good, from thinking that you were going to somehow get to heaven and you transferred your trust to Jesus Christ dying on the cross for you? You know, when Jesus was up there and he was dying, there was a man in maybe the last moment. Right before, there were two thieves on crosses to the right or the left of Jesus. And there was a man who maybe it was, I don't know how long before he said this until he died, but he cried out, Lord, remember me when you come in your kingdom. And what did Jesus say? Today you will be with me in what? Paradise. An eternal state of being. And it was all because that man was a thief. He was convicted as a thief. He was executed as a thief. He was a child of Satan for all of his life until the last moment where he looked to Christ and he believed in Christ. And right then, in that moment, he got eternal life. That moment could happen for you right now if you know you're not ready to experience eternity. Why are you waiting? Who knows how many of these fleeting moments you have left Believe in Jesus Christ. And for those of us who have put our faith in Christ, or do we feel like we are making the most of our time in proclaiming his gospel and living for him? So let's consider that. As the band comes, they'll play a song. We'll pass the elements, and then I'll come back. We'll all take it together. Please pray with me. God, we thank you so much for this powerful word from Jesus Christ. Before Abraham was, I am. And we worship you as the eternal God. We worship you as a God that is ever-present, continuously with us. And we worship you as a God who is there to save us. And God, this could even be the moment of salvation. 
We pray for those who know right now that they don't know you and they're not ready to die. They're not ready to pull back the veil and enter into the realm of eternity to leave space and time behind and to go into your domain, the life of the age to come. God, if there's anyone who knows they're not ready to die, please give them faith in Jesus right here in this moment. Let this be the defining moment of their life. And God, for those of us who remember Jesus Christ, Remember him dying for us, and we can also remember when we put our faith in him. Let us be so thankful we're one of your kids. Let us be so thankful we know where we're going for eternity. And let us be so thankful that that you are with us in this moment, ever-present, ready to redeem and save. God, we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.